Mindhair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And it's the Friday episode of the Vine Bear Podcast. Guys. Hello. What's going on? So, you know, I think a lot of people who listen, well, a good bit will probably be aware of this, but some may not that like, obviously the holiday season starts with Thanksgiving, but it started even earlier this year because it's already Hanukkah, uh-huh. which is crazy. So that while Hanukkah sort of, you know, sometimes falls around when Christmas falls, it also can fall earlier or later because all the Jewish holidays. Lunar calendar, baby. Calendar, yeah. So <laughs> annoying. So annoying. It's like, it's a funny oh, joke. Oh, I love that- it. Really? I see. I find it very fun because to me, there's something about <laughs> a stealth holiday that like no one knows when it's, I mean, all Jewish holidays, no one knows when they're happening. Well, no, I, <laughs> I find that there's like a, a, a funny joke that exists among Jews of like, so, hey, Zach, how you doing? Are you, are you celebrating good. Hanukkah? Is it early or late this year? <laughs> it's never on time. Like no. It's either the holidays are either early or late. They're never yeah. like just right. Oh, they're right where they should be, which That's is so always funny. very, very funny. But yeah, so I, we thought it'd be a, a really fun time to talk about sort of kosher, the kosher practices. Mm-hmm. Zach and I, full disclosure, are not kosher. No, <laughs> but, no, no, but, no. Uh, but are sort of from the world and also sort of just like Jews and booze because there's a really yeah. interesting mm-hmm. history, especially in the U.S., uh, when it comes to Jews and booze, two of the most prominent uh, whiskey companies in the United States are still currently owned by Jewish families. Sazerac, which owns Buffalo Trace, and Heaven Hill, which owns brands like Evan Williams and Larceny, Elijah Craig, etc. Really interesting. And, you know, we're just as sort of active in prohibition as lots of other sort of immigrant groups who had come and saw an opportunity <laughs> to sort of, you know, make some things happen uh, <laughs> while things were illegal. Um, you know, looking at some, some families that moved to California from other countries, uh, made look like boots. Um, but yeah, like a lot of people came in and, and, and did some things and, uh, but helped kind of, you know, really rebuild the United States alcohol industry. Um, uh-huh. but you know, it's what's, what I've always liked about Jewish holidays is they always revolve around drinking. Pretty much. Yes. And, and as the only uh, non-Jewish person here, I made the incorrect <laughs> assumption, uh, that, Hanukkah is a non-drinking holiday, and uh, I was corrected by you both. Yeah, I mean, it's a holiday not only where you drink, but you gamble. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come yeah. on. You get better and better at, at spinning the dreidel the more you drink. Two great vices. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, come on. Like, let's let's put put your money in the middle and let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, but I think it's interesting because, um, you know, just like a lot of other immigrant communities, there's sort of been this sort of reputation that, like, Jews don't drink. And I experienced mm-hmm. this, like – really early on in my days when I was working in the music industry um, and one of the bands that we had signed that we were working with was a band called Balkan Beatbox and they were out of Israel and super fun. Like they would tour with like fish and all these other things. And we would always hear from the club promoters, oh, if Balkan's on the bill, like we think there'll probably be like a lot of, you know, fan- their fans were Jewish. And like, so we're not going to stock the bars heavily because like Jews don't drink. Mm-hmm. And then always they would have like one of their best sales nights of the year. <laughs> Because, in fact, Jews drink just as much as any other group of people in the United States. But that bias kind of exists from that post-Holocaust generation that -hmm. first came to, like, the U.S. and didn't drink because, you know, this group of people was very aware of how they were perceived. And so they never wanted to be perceived as being out of control. Um, and so they, they abstained in a large portion from alcohol. I mean, I, I remember when my grandfather was alive, he only, you know, he would have a drink, 
but it was always kind of in private, if that makes sense. You know, like mm-hmm. he would have like one at the end of the day. Um, he always his his drink of choice was like you know either uh, a Rob Roy or something, but he wasn't like he, he we wouldn't be out ordering wine with dinner. It was always at home. It was always right. kind of in private. Not his public like, self. It was not his public self, and mm-hmm. then I, that, I think that's why that reputation sort of developed. Adam, if I can ask, yeah, I'm just curious. We don't have to get too far into your genealogy, but were your grandparents first generation immigrants? Yeah, they were first generation. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's very interesting for me because I I grew up, um, you know, around my grandparents, and none of my grandparents were first generation. Um, all of them had been in the country. I think maybe my my maternal grandmother was a second generation, but but most mm-hmm. of the family had been in the United States since the 1800s, ah. and so. That was not my experience. My my family drank and does drink a lot, <laughs> um, and and in public and in private, both um, sometimes too much, frankly. But it, it's interesting because you're right. There's that there's that very uh, common um, sort of tension in in immigrant groups, whatever whatever the group is of between yeah. sort of uh, tradition and assimilation, and that's no different for you know especially Eastern European Jews um, and especially post Holocaust or, or kind of in that period of time. But I also think of something that's really fascinating here is is and we can I think want to talk about this in particular is not just the conception that Jews only don't drink, but also the Jews only drink kosher products, right? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And I think there was the reputation not just maybe that Jews wouldn't drink, but also that you have to stock you know kosher wine, right? Whether that's you know Manischewitz or that's one of the many kosher wines that are made from vinifera grapes, but in made in some cases by pretty well known wineries. Um, but but you know we're not going to spend a lot of time dissecting the Keshrut laws. Like it's not that, well, it's interesting, but it's technical and I don't really want to get into it. But the, the truth is, is that making kosher wine is, let's say it's a different process than making totally. non-kosher wine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can probably speak more to this than I can, even with your experience with it. But I do think that, you know, what's been interesting about, and I think where we want to talk about a little bit today is how the, the market for, other kinds of kosher alcohol is actually a much more vibrant market than the kosher wine market. Yeah, totally. Even though that's the thing that most people think of when they think, I mean, they think of Jews drinking, they think of wine, they think of kosher wine. Yeah, yeah. I think what's really interesting is there's a cornucopia of ways to sort of be connected to Judaism the same way there is to be connected to Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, et cetera, right? So you have lots of different observance levels. Um, in the sort of like religious side, so Orthodox, et cetera, mm-hmm. there's, or, or conservatox, people are keep kosher. And in that, in those places, there is a, a proclivity to drink kosher wine, right? Because you can't drink other styles of wine. But the problem with a lot of kosher wine is that either it's wine that was always intended to be kosher. So, you know, it comes from uh, you know, a winery that from the very beginning sets itself up to be kosher, or it is a prominent winery who for a very limited time does a kosher run, right? So nice. they sort of, they clean the entire winery, they bring the rabbi in, everything happens. If you really want to know more about kosher wine, listen to Wine 101, actually this episode this week where Keith delves into kosher wine. He's, he oh, does very much cool. better, he's going to do a much better job than I am. But I think what's been, what's fascinating about sort of this, this idea is that Wine in the United States is one of these incredible luxury products that allows everyone to participate. But in this one subset of the Jewish community, they can't, right? Mm-hmm. They, DR, no one's making kosher DRC, <laughs> right? So, so these these incredible luxury brands, they can't consume. But what they can consume and what's been very interesting is whiskey. Mm-hmm. And 
what that has caused is the religious Jewish community is one of the most powerful buying communities in whiskey. They're, mm. They can, you know, really, re- I mean, which is why so many whiskey brands invest in marketing to them. And I think that has been really fascinating for me, even to, I had no clue about that until really doing some reporting at Vine Pair, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of being introduced to people who are like, wait, like, so you started Vine Pair, oh, and you're Jewish. Did you know that like the, you know, the Orthodox Jews are one of the, you know, most heavily, you know, invested in whiskey people, like groups in the world? I'm like, no. I've never heard of that before. And and that's really been crazy. And then a lot of whiskey brands have released like specifically kosher products, even though technically most of the whiskey is already kosher. And again, like it's too much to get into. But yeah, like Buffalo Trace is a whole kosher line. Mm -hmm. I actually, I didn't know. I only learned about the Whiskey Jubilee uh, like a few weeks ago from a father-daughter couple who I met at a dinner um, who who attended every year. And I don't know, Adam, maybe you can share a little bit more about what that is. It's like a big festival every year. Yeah. So it's a huge whiskey festival where like all the big brands come in and they do it. So the the traditional like whiskey festival in New York has always been held on Friday and Saturday nights. And Mm -hmm. for religious Jews, again, that's Shabbat. So they're not, they're not supposed to be, you know, traveling to get there in anything motorized. So they can't take the subway. They're not going to take a car, et cetera. You're not supposed to spend money. You know, like it's, Mm -hmm. it's Shabbat supposed to be like, you're supposed to turn off. You're supposed to relax. And so you know, they can't go. And so these entrepreneurs in 2013, I think, were like, hey, why don't we just create the same festival, but a few days earlier that week? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where Whiskey Jubilee started. And it's actually become more highly attended than the actual Whiskey Festival. That's um, amazing. And a lot of brands go just specifically for this because people come and they buy tons of bottles mm-hmm. um, yeah. and they love to collect. And it's it's really interesting how it's become such a, you know, ubiquitous part of especially like you know conservatox modern orthodox sort of kosher but i want to say assimilated but you know what i mean like jews Mm -hmm. uh it's really it's interesting and it seems like a path for someone who both want or a a community that wants to feel a part of the broader american experience especially Mm -hmm. maybe with bourbon you know the sort of quintessentially american spirit but with other Mm -hmm. whiskeys as well but also wants to remain, um, you know, observant and connected to their religion and and culture in that sense. And it doesn't maybe ask of compromise on quality, which I think is one of the big complicating factors with a lot of kosher wine is just frankly, most of it isn't as good because the ways of making it kosher generally involve heating it. And that's just not good for fine wine. And so there's this ability to say, on the one hand, I don't have to sacrifice my faith. On the other hand, I don't have to sacrifice my enjoyment of a beverage. And, you know, I mean, we ta- we started out the podcast by talking about this, but like, it deserves to be mentioned whether, you know, you keep kosher or not. Drinking is a big part of Judaism. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> it, is, it is not just not just on the holidays, but on, on Shabbat every, you know, uh, week. And, and as a part of life, it is, I think, I'm not a religious expert, but it is it's certainly as firmly entrenched in the religion as as drinking is in any other faith, I'm pretty sure. Like, yeah. it is essential to, I mean, not that there are not Jews who don't drink, obviously there are plenty, but but just in terms of the traditional and sort of historical observances of the faith, alcohol is a big deal in a lot of the holidays and in the weekly uh, celebration of Shabbat, et cetera. So, so it's another important thing and why I think there's been this synergy between these two communities, because you know, if you're if you're drinking as a part of your observances, you probably want to drink something that you like, and it's cool that you have 
this, you know, increasing selection of not even just whiskeys, but a lot of spirits in general, Mm -hmm. um, because of the the production methods and the raw ingredients are just Mm -hmm. inherently, it's much easier to get them certified as kosher than wine. So whiskey can be problematic in a few different ways, right? So if it's bourbon, it's less problematic because it's been put in a new oak barrel, right? That's Mm -hmm. how bourbon is made. If it's a scotch, which is also super popular, scotches can become problematic if they weren't aged in like used rum barrels or bourbon barrels, but they were aged in, you know, sherry casks and and other old wine casks. And if the wine wasn't kosher that was in it prior to, then those whiskeys become harder to certify, which is why actually I'm now just thinking has to be the reason when I've gone over to religious friends' houses, I've never seen Macallan. Yeah, because all Macallan yeah, sherry. Sherry, sherry casks. Yeah, yeah, which is really I actually never thought about that till just now. Whereas you see like lots of you know other whiskeys, lots of different Highlands, Oban, et cetera, that don't use as much uh, Lagavulin, lots of the smoky stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. you know because you you know you they don't use as much former wine barrels. Uh, but then the fact that a lot of these same brands are also creating kosher offerings. What I find most in- insane about it is that these offerings have become like collector's items, not just mm-hmm. in Orthodox communities, but like in just bourbon communities or whiskey communities in general. Like we just looked today, right, Joanna, to buy the kosher Buffalo Trace. Yeah. And how much did you see it selling for? It was $150 at the liquor store across the street. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Which means more people than just, you know, the, a small religious Jewish community is buying it. Um, yeah. Well, and this is actually, I, I know you, I know you asked not to be put on the spot, Joanna. And I this is <laughs> no. a question. This is not a question about about uh, anything involving kosher rules or anything What's like that. What's your opinion but on I was matzo gonna balls? Ask. No, 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 no. Good no, or not? Wrong good, holiday. Delicious. Wrong I know. holiday. Come do you on, like, dude. Do you like latkes? Okay, continue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, what I was going to say, though, is, you know, as someone who's who's not Jewish, do you get the sense or, or in your time in the food media, like, I, I've always sensed, and I think Adam probably has too, that, that kosher has a certain cachet, even for those who are not Jewish, those who are not certainly keeping kosher, that, like, the 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 reason that Buffalo Trace kosher is so much more expensive than the regular Buffalo Trace, even though I don't think it's inherently like I haven't tried it, but I don't think it's a different formulation. Joanna has. I have. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I, I tried it at, I did actually have it at Brandy library. Um, and it ah. was like, it was a very expensive pour. Um, I think because it is, maybe it's about like the rarity of it. It's or allocated too. Yeah. It's allocated. And, um, and I think that that might be why. Uh, and I, I guess. Was it better? I thought it was amazing. Yeah, Aaron Aaron Goldfarb will tell you it's better. Who knows okay. a lot about whiskey? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, obviously <laughs> know, since he writes about it, yeah, he'll tell you it's better. But again, no one really knows why. If it's this, if it's the same mash bill, right? <laughs> but people think it's better. So I think it's interesting. I mean, also, I think your question, Zach, is an interesting one. I think it sort of plays to more of like one specific, very famous ad campaign that mm-hmm. ran a lot in the 90s and those was the Hebrew National Hot Dog ad campaign yep. when they tried to go national and they were like, oh, we're kosher because we answer to a higher authority. That was literally yep. their tagline, right? And yep. so they sort of like tried to tell the American population, you know, when you see this, we're, we're just better, right? Like mm-hmm. we can't really prove that at all, but because we're kosher, we're better. And so I would say maybe some people think that, but I, I think Joanna's right. It's more just because the bottle's special. It's different. It was made for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. And so people are really interested in that. In the same way that collector's items might be any of these other specialty one-off bourbons or whatever that are made for a cause or for a purpose, and then those things become collector's items just because they're mm-hmm. scarce. Right, because if we thought that about 
all things in the kosher wine market would be explosive. Well, I actually have a not. question for you, Adam. <laughs> Didn't you have some kosher wine recently? Yeah. And what kind? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I've had a, a good a, a bit. I mean, so I used to, um, through through some people I knew, I used to judge the Jewish Week's uh, kosher wine mm-hmm. every year. <laughs> that um, person you know might be your wife. It's not that good. I mean, there's just not a lot of good kosher wine. It's it, yeah. it it. I don't know why. I mean, like, look, the stuff that is coming out of Israel is great because you know they literally certify the entire process, which means they don't yeah. have to then cook the wine. Um, yes. But a lot of places don't, right? So if like – the rules are so ridiculous, but like, you know, depending on how the grapes were picked, who picked them, you know, how they were handled, et cetera, that's why at the very end you have to bring the those that kind of wine up to temperature in order to sort of like make it kosher. And a lot of this also goes back to um, a time when sort of – when these rules were written where like – the wine was being used for rituals and people were poisoning the wine, right? Cause there was like these, these sort of, you know, obviously we've always had fights between religions. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were other religions that were poisoned wine or people who just didn't believe in Judaism, didn't want Jews there, et cetera. And so they were like damaging this ritual wine. And so this was a way to sort of ensure making, making the rules super strict for wine was a way to ho- hopefully ensure the purity of the wine because it was being used so often as Zach said, like, during Shabbat, like at all the mm-hmm. holidays, et cetera. And so that's kind of where, from my understanding, a lot of these mm-hmm. sort of more strict laws on wine came from. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with, you know, with whiskey, like it's already distilled, like it doesn't, you know, we're not worried about who's making the whiskey. Like, well, know, and the kosher laws were written before, like distilling was a thing. Exactly. So. And so then the only thing that really affects whiskey is just like for eight days of the year during Passover, you can't drink it because it's made from grain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's when everyone switches to potato vodka, but they still <laughs> drink. <laughs> that's <how laughs> like, and that's actually where the, uh, what I think is interesting is in Passover is the only time in the year that you will hear most Jews, secular, etc., probably have a bottle of kosher wine. I don't know why that is. It's like, we think it's the one time we should go get a bottle of kosher wine. Like I remember that growing up, like my I mom would that. go to the grocery store and like, oh, I stopped, we stopped. But there was a time when we would do that, and then my mom, why are we doing this? Like we never drink kosher wine. <laughs> the only time in my life I've really gone out and bought a bottle of kosher wine was for my wedding because the synagogue insisted upon it. Exactly right, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's just it's always it's it's a really interesting thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, Adam, okay, okay. Spirits. So we just just to come back full circle a little bit to the Hanukkah thing. So yeah. You've you've brought up latkes a bunch of times. Is that your is that your default Hanukkah setting? Because it is not my favorite Hanukkah food. I mean, first of all, you never had my latkes, so <laughs> if you had, it, no, would no fav- it would be your favorite Hanukkah food. Um, I do them really, really awesome. Uh, I'm on a I'm on a three to four potato to one whole onion ratio. Oh, okay. I I add in. Lots of chives and scallions because I like some color. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I fry them really well and then I top them with creme fraiche and caviar because I'm a baller. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, or 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 smoked or smoked oh, salmon, yeah. but only from Russ and daughters because mm-hmm. uh, okay. you know they know how it's done. That's because you haven't had my smoked salmon. Oh, that's, I forgot you make it. Oh. I do, but the, the, I like latkes a lot. I mean, it's just it's it's a fun traditional one. Oh, for sure. And then I I have the donuts, but yeah, that's about yes. it. What about you? 
So the donuts are that are the thing for me. (laughs) You make Uh, them? Oh, that is really aggressive. Caitlin and I make them. Uh, We have a deep fryer and uh, we put it to good use this time of year. And I got to say, like, latkes are great, but a homemade donut is (laughs) (sighs) they're just nothing like it. And what's cool is, you know, we get to kind of fill them with whatever we want. So um, I would say probably the like the main the two main fillings in our household are um, Caitlin will make like pastry cream. And then Nutella, which is a, a fresh Nutella filled donut. I got to tell you, it, it, it goes real well after a latke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what's funny is uh, this is a total tangent, but um, Caroline Schiff, who's the pastry chef at Gage and Tolner, has mm-hmm. an Instagram handle pastry chef. And okay. um, she posted a video of herself showing people how to make uh, donuts mm-hmm. uh, this week. And I've been really tempted to do it, but it just really, really intimidates me. The thing about donuts is it's really hard to do them at home if you don't have a deep fryer. Like you really? gotta have. Yeah. You, I think, like you can try and do, if you've got a really thick like enamel pot, you can fry in there. But like, you really need to be able to like have enough oil that you can like turn them comfortably. And I've tried. We've tried before. We got a deep fryer to do them in like a cast iron skillet, and it's just like it's a huge mess. It's, it's just yeah. I, I don't think it's worth it. Um, I'm really impressed. If you've got a, if you've got wow. like a good, if you've got a good like enamel or cast iron like pot you mm-hmm. can do it what do you pair with them with donuts yeah um, actually frankly i would whiskey. probably have i would have some whiskey yeah yes. and we, it's probably time for us to do that so, <laughs> so i think we each have a different kosher beverage here i've got my i've got to go to go to uh to back to scotland i have ardbeg 10 which nice. is one of my favorites uh an east Lake single malt as you mentioned uh definitely a uh a, a peatier scotch and therefore why waste sherry barrels on that exactly so that's what i'll be drinking joanna what do you have i have journeyman distillery last feather rye whiskey which i got from the office and drank most of it before realizing <laughs> that <laughs> it is kosher um so i'll be drinking that journeyman has some affiliation with sazerac but i'm not sure what it is but i i met them at the at bcb and it was at the sazerac booth i think sazerac either like nationally distributes them or whatever. But the only reason I say that is because Sazerac has so many whiskeys now they're turning kosher. So I wonder if that's why. And where is, where is Journeyman? <laughs> Michigan. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And what do you have, Adam? So mine does not say kosher on it, but it is a Larceny uh, single barrel. And uh, as I mentioned, Larceny is owned by the Shapira family out of Louisville, Kentucky. And Very cool. So yeah, we all, the two of us have a bourbon and I mean, no, we all have different things. I have a bourbon, yeah, we have a rye and we got a scotch. Sweet. I yeah, wish I had go. some donuts though. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I would send them, but I don't have. I don't think they they'd uh, hold up very well. Who already took a sip? Who already took a sip? Me. I was, I was like, someone's already drinking. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, look, it's a holiday, man. What do you want? Mm-hmm. Well, cheers, guys. Happy Hanukkah. Let's Happy try. Hanukkah. This. Happy Hanukkah. Zach, you want to tell us about yours first, since you you already precipped. I did. Uh, <laughs> man, once I get in the glass, I'm not waiting very long. I got to be honest. I mean, I love Ardbeg. I think it's one. Of, they're one of the really fun. I mean. We're not going to have a long conversation about our Isla scotches and and how I um, enjoy them, but I do like my scotch on the peatier side from time or a fair bit of the time, and um, it's just I mean it's it's smoky, it's got a little bit of a caramel note, but you know it's 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 yeah, I don't know, man. If you haven't had a scotch like this, then I don't know how to describe it to you. But it's not <laughs> it's but it's not it's not ashtray, which I really appreciate. One or yeah, two they're of them not, they're not ashtray. That they're not. Yeah, I, I, I find Lafroy gets ashtray real quick. Yeah, well, the Frank has a has a challenge of being like very acidic on top of being peaty, and that that combo like I like I, I would say my probably my favorite of the really kind of uh, Isla scotches is probably 
Lagavulin, which is even richer than that's a great uh, Ardbeg. But that one, at least on the bottle I have, is not kosher, so or doesn't say it. So I went with the uh, Ardbeg, which is and which is a delight. And I have a couple of the other. It's like more kind of, um, or I guess one of the other Ardbeg bottlings, um, which is even smokier than this. But uh, they're they're not things I drink a ton of. Um, like one every few weeks is probably mm-hmm. enough for me most of the time. But yeah, what do you? What about you, Adam? Uh, so I got Larsen. It's really good. So it's a you know it's a weeded bourbon. Um, so it would not be okay at Passover, but no bourbon would, uh, it's very, it, it's just, it's, I find it, you know, really sweet and rich and I mean, dare I say smooth, uh, it's, it's a really, it's a very, really great sleeper value bourbon too. Like Larceny's are all like in the twenties and thirties, but I, I do think this is like some, one of the, the probably potentially new sort of cult brands people will start grabbing and they'll be harder and harder to find because eventually people who are bourbon hunters are going to run out of uh brands that that's that buffalo trace makes um and they're gonna start realizing there's better there there's really great other brands i don't want to say better but there's really great other brands out there and larceny is one of them one of my favorite bourbons that heaven hill makes is is old fitzgerald or old fitz and there's like there's a connection between that brand and larceny in the same way there's kind of a connection between people think between sort of like pappy and um uh weller so mm-hmm. that's uh that's 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 where i am with this it's a great bourbon though joanna what about you yeah uh this is this is really delicious it's a big banana bread on the on the nose and palate for this one it's nice it's uh the mash bill is 60 percent rye 40% wheat. So definitely getting a lot of the sweetness of the wheat, not too much spice. Um, really delicious. They make another great bourbon too, Journeyman, or another great whiskey that I had at BCB, which is 100% wheat, which I'd never had before. Uh, it was huh. really cool. It was really cool. So just, just labeled as like an American whiskey or something? Yeah, like an American know, wheat or whatever. And they're going for, you huh. know, I mean, it's got that really sweet sort of like in your face. But I mean, they said it's like, just like with all these kinds of like smaller distilleries but that have have gotten have built some reputations uh there's like it's like heavily allocated <laughs> like, like oh if you can find this go and i'm like okay cool guys um <laughs> i'm not in that game i don't like being in that game i don't have to want to have to <laughs> shit um but yeah it's called buggy whip wheat whiskey buggy whip <laughs> nice nice well joanna zach happy hanukkah happy hanukkah thank you same to you. We'll Have see you a on Tuesday. Holiday. Thank you. Bye, guys. <laughs> Take it easy. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing loves to get the credit also i would love to give a special shout out to my vine pair co-founder josh mallon for helping make all this possible and also to keith beavers vine pair tastings director who is additionally a producer on this show i also want to of course thank every other member of the vine pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again